Hello and welcome to series two of the Training for Influence podcast. Our aim is to help you deliver the best training possible. We'll be exploring how to make the most of every single second in a training session and how to deliver training so that it has added influence. You'll be hearing from me, Tammy Banks, and I'll be chatting with Training for Influence graduates, facilitators and experts who can speak to each of the steps. Expert, tailored, engaging and values-led. We hope you find these podcasts really beneficial. I'm really looking forward to speaking to James McCarthy today. James is one of the founding trainers of Tay Training and his training influenced the development of the Training for Influence methodology. James is here to give us his take on the expert element of the methodology and he talks about how his connected experience working with people convicted of sexual offences as a youth worker in local authority and in charities has really helped to inform the way that he delivers sessions. Thank you again for being my podcast guest for the second time, James. It's wonderful to have you here. Thank you. It's okay. And how did you feel after your first podcast experience when people were listening to it and then messaging you and saying how much they enjoyed it and things like that? Yeah, it was great. I didn't realise like, how many people had listened to it when, when we originally did it. Because it was just like a chat, really, that we were having that was being recorded. And then I think the strangest thing that I found, I thought, oh, is, this, is it quite weird listening to yourself? I, I did listen to a little bit of it, but then I was driving in the car and thinking, no, it's a bit weird listening to yourself. But I have listened to it all the way through now. <laughs> Fantastic. But it, you're right, it is strange when people message you and say that they've listened to it and that they got value from it and things like that it stops me in my tracks now and I think I've done hundreds now for other people and mm-hmm. ourselves and it still stops me in my tracks and still makes me smile yeah and people uh, interpret it what you say in different ways as well don't they and take their yeah. own thing from it I guess like the training I suppose. yeah absolutely and did some of your staff members listen to it as well uh, yeah yeah they liked it as well I didn't push it too hard I might make this one compulsory who knows but uh <laughs> But it is interesting because obviously they will see you within your current role as well. So mm-hmm. interesting for them to actually hear you talk wider than your current role. Yeah, definitely. And we do talk a lot about different things, you know, in terms of past and previous roles. So yeah, it's good to, it brings it all together well. Yeah, absolutely. But no, what I should say, because some of the listeners who are listening to this won't have listened to your previous podcast is, James, could you just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what you currently do and a little bit of your experience? Yes, so I've been a facilitator for Tay since 2016, 17-ish. So historically, my background has been working with young people, offenders, those that are affected by substance misuse, mental health, and various other complex issues. Worked in homeless services for quite some time, uh, the housing setting, hostels. Worked specifically with perpetrators of sexual violence for a number of years in one role. Being a qualified youth worker for about 11, don't quote, 11 or 12 years-ish. And now I'm a youth work manager for a local authority. So yeah, it ties it all well together. You've made yourself sound really old, James. Yeah, well, you're knocking on a little bit now. Yeah, but equally, you've, you've done some of these jobs alongside each other as well, haven't you? Yeah, uh, definitely, yeah. So I was a, a part-time youth worker, for, and that's why I enjoy my current job so much. I was a part-time youth worker for, like I said, 11, 12 years alongside the full-time job working in various voluntary sexual organisations. And then the post came up 
as a more managerial role within the youth service. So yeah, jumped at that and like I said, brings it all together nicely. Fantastic. And also really clearly highlights why I invited you here today, because I've invited you here to talk a little bit to the expert step in the methodology, which as mm-hmm. you know, is the first step of the training for influence methodology. But the first thing that I just want to say and just let listeners know is because you've been around so long with Tate, so you know, near enough from the beginning, the methodology was based on and derived from yours and other Tay trainers. So myself, Faye, yourself, and then a whole host of other people who came into Tay to deliver training for colleagues and other connected organisations, specifically in the area that we were specialising in at the time. Mm-hmm. And so Tay was very much built from the fact that we asked each other, didn't we? We spoke to each other and said, yeah. Who knows more about that? Who's worked within this area? Who's worked with young people? Who's got more skills? And we used to swap the training sessions between us based on actually who's walked the walk. And that was before there was any type of methodology. It very much came from we just wanted to be able to deliver the best training we could to our colleagues and partner agencies and such like. Yeah, absolutely. It's been quite I can't even think of the word really because it's been huge for me as I've gone through kind of this journey to be able to recognize actually yourself and the other kind of founding facilitators of Tay. It's been really huge that recognition that the methodology has very much derived from actually all of the connected elements of the way that we all trained for years to get the best outcomes for people that were doing jobs very, very similar to ours or ones that we had done or connected to? The way I think about it is methodology comes naturally. It's not as if a methodology was created and then the training was devised to fit the methodology. The methodology was born out of what was working already and you know when it was sat down and analysed, I guess. I completely agree. And I think that one of the reasons why we at Tay get booked so regularly and why the methodology is naturally fitting with so many people is for exactly that reason, is the fact that there was never anybody's desire. There certainly wasn't mine. And I'm guessing that it wasn't yours. There was nobody's desire to develop a training company. Actually, what we were trying to do was help our colleagues and partner agencies and such like be able to deliver effective services. And so we yeah. developed training that met that need rather than training for training. Does that make yeah. sense? Absolutely. Yeah, just training for training's sake, you know, going and presenting slides to people, you know, that could be passed off as training, I suppose, isn't it? And much easier done, but it, it wouldn't work. No. And so we didn't have that formal process right back when. We just went from the heart of what we knew worked for us and for our colleagues and then honed it and learned as we went, really, didn't we? Yeah, definitely. And, and still learning as well. And that's why, that's why it does work. Yeah, absolutely. Always still learning. Every day is a school day. So I'm really grateful for you to give me your time today. In series one of the podcast, as you know, we put out some of the training courses in bite-sized chunks so that people could really access that information. Series two of the podcast is very much about the methodology and about helping people who are delivering training now recognize and implement and adapt the training that they're already delivering so that it can have added influence Mm -hmm. and i've 
talked to a few people on the podcast. I've talked to some of the graduates who have been through the full program. I've talked to different people about the different steps. So somebody about the engaging element who's an expert and has a long history and working from an engaging perspective and within those learning styles. And I've got another podcast with a psychologist to talk about the values and the trauma-informed element. So these are just kind of discussion pieces, really, but around one of the steps of the methodology. Mm-hmm. Yep. I guess the first thing that I want to ask you really is how and why do you think it's important that somebody delivering training does have an understanding and connected experience for that subject and that kind of sector and customer group? Because I know that that's really important to you. Yeah, so a number of different reasons, really. I guess from a learner point of view, if you've got somebody that's, you know, stood there in front of you or more recently on the screen in front of you and they are not knowledgeable or confident in the things that they're discussing, you can see straight through that. And that leads to a lesser quality of course. And also look at it from a facilitator point of view. I think that or the way that I certainly like to deliver training and why I think it works so well is because it's a conversation. And if you don't have that information or evidence-based knowledge or practice knowledge, for example, you can't have that conversation. And I think it's important, again, as a facilitator, that you can learn massive amounts of information from the people that are on the course. It's a two-way street. And if you are not confident in the subject matter, then you're not confident in having those conversations and that, you know, embracing all those different learning styles. So you're not going to get the best out of it for both parties. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think one of the things that also goes alongside that is also empathy for their situation. Do you know, true understanding of what they're up against and the complexities of the situation that they're operating within as well? Definitely. And I think sometimes, and, and a lot of the time, don't get me wrong, we're offering solutions to those challenges but also i've had really powerful moments on a training course where an individual's told me something and you can just sit there and go do you know what that is that's really challenging that that is tough and let's look at it through it together but sometimes the benefits of talking to the facilitator about it is just being listened to about it and the solution is almost a byproduct of the conversation but the real impact is the conversation itself just getting it off the chest Yeah, absolutely. And being able to support and help somebody to work through that themselves as well. Definitely, yeah. I do think as well, in days where training is few and far between and organisations, particularly charities and within kind of statutory services and such like, they're having to pick how they spend their days because their caseloads are increasing, their monitoring requirements are through the roof and there aren't enough working hours in the day to do everything that's expected of them they're Mm -hmm. they're having to pick when they put people on training so people are attending less training than they have done previously and if they can have a facilitator if you've got a new member of staff in particular coming on the training course and they've got a facilitator who's got real clear connected experience within that area then actually I think you can save them falling into many holes along the way. Do you know, I've talked, and I think in the Professional Boundaries podcast, I gave some examples of real huge mistakes that I made in mm-hmm. my life. And I openly share them within my training sessions and within the podcast in the hope that somebody else goes, I know what to look out for now, or I'm going to avoid that. Yeah. Or, oh, I won't get myself into that situation. <laughs> Do you know? yeah. and, so, and, and it's like... 
you know, I've been a manager for several years now and you'd like to think that an environment was created in the workplaces that I've been in and you've been in where people feel comfortable speaking to you about things and honest with you if they're not sure about something or if they're worried about getting something wrong. But at the same time, that's not always the case. And the amount of conversations I've had with people and I've explained, oh, I wish I'd done this differently or do you know what, in hindsight, I could have done that better. And you can literally see people's shoulders just drop sometimes and, you know, weight's been lifted because they think, okay, so it's not just me that's made this mistake. I'm, I'm six weeks into this job and I'm not as confident on my risk management procedures or my safeguarding practice as I maybe portray or maybe have told somebody that I am confident because I didn't want to speak up at the time. And I say, when we finish a lot of the courses that I deliver, I say use this training as a, just a huge excuse to go back to your SMT or your management structure and say, you know, we've just done this training. Can I just double check that I've got this right? And it's, it's more comfortable because then it's, that question is almost coming from me rather than it's coming in directly from me, but directly it's coming from them, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And I think that that's really, really powerful because I've delivered training and had people that have been in the role years and years and years who feel like they've got past the point of being able to ask questions. And as somebody in the room who really kind of understands their situation, you can foster that environment of there are no daft questions. And actually Mm -hmm. anything that you share or any questions that you ask, you can ask on behalf of the group rather than yourself as an individual. And that allows people kind of that, that freedom to learn in that way and to learn from each other. Yeah, I always give the example on a number of the courses that I deliver that even 15 years ago when I first started this, there was mentor programs, traineeships, apprenticeships, and you literally couldn't get to the next stage of the role, whatever that may be, without having something signed off because there was the capacity, there was the time. One example I can think of when I started my first organization didn't even have a caseload for three or four weeks whilst I was reading policies and shadowing and having a bit of time for reflection and to figure out what my practice might look like in the early stages of my career. Whereas now, because of constraints, funding across different sectors and so many different issues, you've got people straight into the job and throwing a caseload you know, of 15, 16, 20, 25, sometimes even higher that we, you know, of individuals that we've trained. And they don't have that time to get the feet under the table a little bit. And then before you know it, the three years down the line and those questions that they might want to ask, they're not so confident in asking because in inverted commas, they should know that by now. And that's not always the case. Yeah, absolutely. And I completely agree with you. It kind of goes back to that underfunded and being under pressure all of the time. Mm -hmm. But often as frontline workers, you don't even have time to process things, let alone store them for future benefits as well. And Definitely. one of the things when you've got somebody in the room that has that connected experience and can relate. So from an expert perspective, you don't have to have the answer for everything. And actually, I would argue that nobody ever has the answer for everything. But mm-hmm. you have some connected understanding. You understand the issues. And I think safeguarding is a really obvious one here. Safeguarding is mandatory for new enough, well, for every organization that's working with children and for every organization working with adults at risk from a legal perspective. And mm-hmm. the safeguarding, if you look at the legislation and the categories of abuse and the signs and symptoms, 
you can kind of just present it if you want to the same way to every single organization and you're still presenting that legislation those categories of abuse those signs and symptoms actually what somebody takes away from that will be really minimal because they've not connected it to what they're doing on the front line every day. Now, if you've got an expert who has worked within the same sector or whether they've worked within a different sector but a connected role or with the same customer group or held a similar role in a different organisation, just being able to really understand where that organisation is at they'll overlay that safeguarding training when they're delivering it. And I know this is kind of moving into the tailored element, but they'll overlay that training session with, okay, so you're working with young people. So actually, what are the signs and symptoms around young people? What are the categories of abuse that are more prominent with young people? Mm -hmm. Oh, actually, you're working in in leads. Well, actually, the demographic in leads or the complexities in leads or the themes in leads, do you know, they, they can connect it from the different ways so that when the people walk out of the room, Yes, they still, they have all of that mandatory information about safeguarding, but they have it connected to their customer group, their organization, and they have that, that kind of empathetic understanding across both groups of people. Mm-hmm. And, and that's your difference. Yeah, that's your difference between delivering a presentation and delivering training. Yeah. I would like to say um, facilitating training, James. Facilitating training, yeah. <laughs> Semantics. Because exactly as you said earlier, I keep going back to facilitating rather than delivering, mainly because I, like you, recognize that everybody in the room, and just like the methodology talks to, everybody in the room is absolutely an expert in their own right. You might Mm -hmm. be the subject expert that day. You also might not be that sometimes you will go to facilitate training. And no safeguard training again is an example. There's somebody who's been the designated safeguard officer for the organization for 30 years and they're on their mandatory refresher, and they might have reams more safeguarding experience than you. Mm-hmm. So you're not, even when you facilitate training, you're not always the most expert in the room for the subject. Yeah. But everybody within that room is expert in their own way, with their own perspectives and understanding. And of I think their own experiences, yeah. Absolutely. That's, it's so key. People used to say to me, oh, yeah, but when you facilitate training, the people in the room that are completely new to the job, they're not experts. And I'll say, but their experience is just as valid. And what they bring to that training session is that exuberance, is that excitement, are those questions that people have been around a bit, won't ask, do you know, all of those type of things. If you're facilitating it, everybody within that room is coming from that equal perspective, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing. It's that excitement and that exuberation that you just mentioned that you need to have in your facilitators as well. And that's why facilitators deliver course X, Y, and Z. So I know for me, talking about you know, the expert side of things, there are some courses that I won't deliver because I think part of the benefits of facilitating the courses that you're passionate about, that you're driven about, it just means you want to learn more, you want to experience more, and you're living that on a daily basis. And that leads to better facilitation, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And you're passionate about sharing that information. And you're mm-hmm. passionate about helping people to be able to work within the parameters that over your work in life, you've learned really, really make that difference as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think people recognize that. I think you can see when somebody turns up to facilitate training that doesn't have that exuberance about that subject or that real kind of connected experience and that real passion to help you 
on your journey of learning, if that doesn't sound too cliche? No, it, do, it doesn't at all. And I think that that's something that you can't just, as a trainer or facilitator, that's something that you just can't give someone. So I'm like very aware of what I'm interested in, what my passion is, what I like doing. And that's a fortunate position to be in. But at the same time, like I said, that enables me to highlight particular courses that I perhaps wouldn't facilitate training. I'd I'd like to think that I could still deliver a decent training course in a variety of subjects, but I wouldn't truly be able to facilitate that course to the best of my ability because my passion in that subject is just not there. And that's, for me, I think that's a decent conclusion to come to because you can't be passionate about everything, can you? Otherwise, the, the, you know, the whole use of the word would be defunct completely. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And actually, I was just reflecting as you were talking there, there's a part in the expert chapter of the book where I talk about the day that myself and Faye both kind of sat there and went, oh yeah, we're not the experts in Tay anymore, are we? For the hmm. vast majority of the courses are delivered by facilitators who are far more expert than us in those subjects now. We do more of the directorship and the board level stuff and things like that because that's where we're at now. Yeah. For the other stuff, the stuff that we still are passionate about, yes, we can go and deliver the courses if needed, but from a frontline professional's perspective, they would much rather have you with your real daily connected experience than me reflecting on something I did 15 years ago. Do you know, yeah, no, yeah. not to say that I can't do it, but I'm in a luxurious position, a bit like you. I know, for instance, that some of the courses that you really like delivering are the ones about risk management and about youth and about working with people at risk of perpetrating offences and such like. Now, you're fantastic at the safeguarding courses and you, you do deliver those for us as well. But generally, you'll deliver the safeguarding courses now when they're for organisations whose customers fit into that sphere that we've just talked about. Yeah, absolutely. I've got a natural, you know, we were talking before we started the podcast today about some potential training that's coming up, working with an organisation. And I'm passionate about their, their customer, their client base, and we'll probably have a lot of things in common about the way that we work, the way that we deliver our practice. And you can't fake that. You can't magic it up. So I think that's why it's really important, you know, the stuff that we were discussing earlier in terms of why you pick the right person to facilitate the right course. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important to say at this point that when we talk about being an expert, so James, you are quite unique in the sense of you absolutely are within the subjects that we're talking about. You've had years worth of operational experience and then moved within management. And yes, absolutely within Tay, we select our facilitators based on different elements, depending on different organisations that we're working with, and then we match them. But you are, I would say, well, listeners won't be able to see, but it'll probably make you um, blush slightly. Do you know, you are at that top end of expert within these subjects now, without a doubt. And I guess one of the things I want to reassure listeners about is we're not saying that you absolutely need to know everything about everything within that subject or have 15, 20 years experience within a certain subject to be able to deliver that subject. That's not what we're saying at all. There's different levels of expertise and there's connected expertise. And all of it is just as valid and makes a significant difference when you're facilitating a course. Obviously, it's brilliant if you can get somebody like you, James, and we'll talk in a moment about some of the training coming up that you're about to deliver for us and why we've selected you to deliver it. 
And it's brilliant when you've got that resource at your hand. But equally, some of our listeners and some of the organisations who have internal trainers that will be looking at the methodology, they might have somebody who's just come into the organisation and they've taken on the role as a trainer and they don't have all of that life experience or all of that operational experience that you have. But actually, they still absolutely could be supported to build the connected experience and the connected understanding. Absolutely. Yeah, completely agree. I think that it's just about learning, isn't it? And I think if you've got that want to learn about a particular subject matter, then it'll come a lot of it will come naturally as well, because you'll find yourself wanting to do it. You'll find yourself signing up to X, Y and Z account or to receive updates or bulletins, whatever it may be. It happens and it's built naturally, I think. Yeah. And we've seen certainly within the Training for Influence group as people coming through the cohort, We've also seen people lean into each other to be able to support each other with building the different areas of expertise. For example, there was one of the trainees that came through the program. His expertise was very much connected to equality and diversity and really focused on LGBTQ+. And one of the facilitators who is a TAY facilitator, as the trainee came through the program, there's an element of it where you deliver training to other people on the program and she'd come along from Tay to be able to give feedback and things and she reflected at the end and she said gosh I learned so much from being part of watching them present and then a couple of days later I actually did a podcast with her and it was really funny because on the podcast she had said to me oh and when I was delivering safeguarding awareness last week or, or whenever it was a question came up about signs and symptoms around LGBTQ and how to safeguard people from emotional abuse within that area. And she said, and I used X, Y, and Z's example. Um, mm-hmm. And I told the story that he told within his training. And obviously she attributed it to him. But that was her learning, kind of learning by proxy, which just mm-hmm. a couple of days later, she absolutely could share that with delegates in the room. And that was just as powerful. Yeah, and that's what I meant by learning happening naturally. You know, because you seek these, you know, that facilitator, that person wasn't in that meeting just by chance. It's because they sought out that opportunity because they have a general interest and, and passion around the various subjects that are linked to the stuff that we deliver upon. And just back to exactly what I was saying in terms of that learning has occurred naturally, hasn't it? Yeah, exactly. And I think as we go through life, you talk about it a lot about your frame of reference. And I use my invisible suitcase and things, but there's a load of things in my personal life that absolutely influenced my ability to connect within training from an expert perspective from being a mum from the struggles of setting up a business from my adverse childhood experiences there's a whole host of things within my personal life that also connect me for different things that I'm delivering and when I'm facilitating training as well yeah and then there's always also the option of co-facilitating and partnering with somebody as well There's a whole kind of host of ways to bring the expert into the room. It's not always one road to expertise. But I guess what we're really trying to say with this step from the walk in the walk element of it is that actually that consideration, we need to stop and think about what are the connections between us as a facilitator and the training course that we're facilitating. And if the connections are limited, how can we increase those? And if we can't increase those or we don't have the passion, then should we really be delivering that course? And if it's a case that actually 
we have the luxury of choice and no, we shouldn't, great, step back. If it's a case of actually we need to be delivering that course and some people will be in that position if they're in internal trainers or some freelance trainers that for financial reasons have taken delivery of courses that they might not have been their first choice to pick. I feel we have a moral responsibility to then go and seek out that information or those other people that we can talk to like within the training for influence community, for instance, go and talk to somebody else there, go and seek out the best practice or the learning or get somebody to come in and do a guest spot, <laughs> you know, all of those yeah. different options. It's about considering how do I put that expert in the room? And for some people, that'll be really natural and really easy, like yourself on the connected courses that we're talking about. But for other people, they might need to consciously go, okay, right, okay, how do I bring that expert into the room? Where do I seek those stories, those examples? Who can help me understand from a different perspective? And what options do I have as well? Yeah, definitely. And I think it's important that thinking about the word expert, it doesn't mean that the individual that's facilitated has some all-encompassing knowledge of the subject. Like I remember you just made me think when you mentioned co-facilitation just then. And I did that with a colleague several months ago now when it was a principles of risk management course together. And her knowledge of risk is incredibly vast. And her experience had been from a statutory perspective. Whereas a lot of my experience was from a voluntary perspective. There's actually a case study on the course and we both knew the same individual, but had approached it from completely different ways. So the word expert is almost never ending, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the word expert scares people sometimes because I know one of the um, TAE facilitators who is absolutely an expert in her field was one of the beta readers for the first version of the Training for Influence book. And actually, do you know, she sent me this most lovely email afterwards. And don't get me wrong, she highlighted loads of things that I'd got wrong and grammar mistakes and things like that. She did a brilliant job. But in this email, she said to me, Tammy, after reading the first chapter, she said, I had to sit there for a moment and just let it sink in that I am an expert because I've never felt like one. I've never believed in myself as one. And I've never viewed myself from that perspective. And she said, and I read the chapter and I went, oh my gosh, I am. I am an expert. And she said it was wow. right. I gave myself permission to recognize that. And it's exactly what you're saying there, James. It isn't about the fact you don't have to have numerous degrees after your name, lots of letters and 20 years experience in the field. You know, that connected expertise can come from so many different perspectives, mm-hmm. but it's about always ensuring that you're considering how you're going to have that expert element within the room from that walk in the walk perspective. Yeah, I mean, you know, the individual you're talking about, I'm exactly the same to a certain extent. Expert, in terms of the word, doesn't, it it registers a little bit. I enjoy doing what I do and I enjoy facilitating courses about what I do and what I have done in the past. But I am, interestingly, I'm the same with the word specialist. Me, my frame of reference personally, doesn't sit with me as a person as well. I much prefer the phrase, even though they're very similar, I suppose you could argue. But for me, they've just got completely different connotations. And that's a personal thing. Yeah, absolutely. So, James, I've really enjoyed talking to you and really appreciate your time again. And I will invite you back on the podcast because I do just enjoy having conversations with you. So I'm hoping people enjoy listening to us chat. It's just good to chat, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, it's always good to chat. So, James, let's finish off then with just giving a quick example. So you're delivering some training for Tay just coming up soon, aren't you? And you're delivering a fleet of courses for the same organisation. 
the courses are working with people who have the potential to sexually harm, mm-hmm. safeguarding refresher, and then safeguarding for mentors. Now, the organization is an organization that works with young people who have been through the criminal justice system. They're back into the community and the organization works with them over a period of time to help them readjust to being back in the community, desist from further offending and hopefully move into meaningful activity and employment. So could you just talk us just a little bit through why you think we came and spoke to you and offered you this course as first refusal and then what your thought process is as you're going through tailoring these courses, I guess, for the organization. Wow, what a question that is. That's, that's something to have a think about, isn't it? Um, Ooh, I think people don't realise that we're recording this at 20 past 10 at night as well, <laughs> because obviously we both work and I'm in the camper and such like. So yeah, what a question to finish on, James. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess, sorry, I'm going to have to break that down. So I think that the first part of it is that throughout my career I would say that I've worked with many individuals with complex needs and I've had the time and space to recognize what I enjoy doing the most and as part of that I found myself spending a lot of time in or working for organizations rather that specifically work with young people at risk of various issues and as a byproduct of that, obviously, I've spent a lot of time with said young people that are at risk of various issues and learned so much from it. And I think to then be in a room with the organization that obviously I'm aware of that we've previously spoke about with individuals who are in the same situation as me now, maybe, maybe me in the future, or certainly give an example of when I have had their experiences, perhaps but in the past, maybe a number of years ago through my career development and my career pathway. And I think that being able to empathize and connect with the individuals that are going to be on the course, it makes me excited about tailoring the course for them. And I've got so many ideas of where I could potentially go with it. And that starts from a basis of what would I want it to know at that stage. Does that answer the question? Yeah, that really kind of gives us some context, particularly because of where you are in your own career and the learning that you've had along the way. You are in that reasonably luxurious position where actually you pick the subjects based on your passions, just like you said earlier. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think hopefully that comes across in the feedback that we've had. I've I've seen it and it's always out of any feedback, whatever it gets marked. I think the thing that makes me most proud and pleased about how the facilitation session has gone is that people will make notes that I was passionate about the subject because I am, and it does come across, so it's always nice to hear. And in terms of the second part of your question, in terms of how am I going to go about you know, tailoring this fleet of packages, it's making sure that there's a continued theme throughout and that it's linked to them as an organization. Because like you said, there'll be so many presentations. You know, you pick Safeguarding as an example, there'll be, thousands if not more presentations out there about safeguarding but then it's how that becomes real and how we make different aspects of the children's at the care act the signs the symptoms of abuse categories or whatever it may be that we're talking about the safeguarding course it's about me looking that and thinking yep we can link that to that and that to that because that's what we want we want people to go away from the course that day and think right okay this could well happen 
when I'm on shift tomorrow. It could even happen later tonight. It's not about having all the answers, but it's about knowing where to find them. Yeah. And because you've walked that walk, because of the connected experience you've got, you know, the first course that you're delivering, we just mentioned there was working with people who have the potential to sexually harm. Now, that course in itself, I would say, so within TAY, for listeners that don't know, we have some, what we call our core courses. I think there's about eight of them now and they include, well, you can listen to the first series of the podcast, but they include things like safeguarding risk management, managing challenging behavior and subjects like that. And we have lots and lots of facilitators who deliver our core courses. And then we select the facilitator based on who the organization is and who the customer group is and the person with that connected experience for those two elements. But then we also have specialist courses and those specialist courses People are selected specifically to deliver that subject because of some specialism or some specialist experience they've potentially had. James, for about four and a half, five years, I think, worked for a charity preventing sexual harm by working with people who were convicted of sexual offences that had come through the criminal justice system and then were living in the community. And so for the course, you absolutely are an expert in that area. Yes. What you were saying then, I think that knowing that the individuals that I'm going to be facilitating the course with in the coming weeks, they could be working with somebody, whether it be a convicted perpetrator or somebody at risk of sexual harmful behaviours, they could have quite easily been a client customer service user that I was engaging with as well. So it just ties things all together. And the difference between a training course and a training course that's facilitated, like we were talking about earlier, is the constant conversation throughout the day. Don't get me wrong, a certain part of tailoring the course is making sure that the slides are right, making sure that the messages and the beliefs and the core values of the organization shine through. But for me, it'd be naive to think that that is done by the slides alone. I think I'd say that's 10% of it, if that. 90% of it is through the conversation that you're having with the learners throughout the day. Yeah, absolutely. And you've seamlessly moved into um, the second step of the methodology as well. So um, I'll be inviting you back, James. (laughs) (laughs) In an hour? Yeah, in an hour. Maybe not quite so um, late at night, eh? So, James, is there anything else? Have you got any, I guess, words of wisdom, final thoughts that you'd like to share with the listeners to kind of wrap up the podcast? Because I think you've done a great job of sharing some of your experience and some of your learning. And I guess the fact that although way back when we started delivering for Tay and we started facilitating that training, it all goes back to exactly what you've said is we've learned along the way as well. Absolutely, yeah. Right back when we started, it was very much about we were trying to desperately meet a need that our partner agencies and our internal colleagues had. And so we've been continually learning. So I would never, I wouldn't even call myself an expert trainer, you know, yeah. because it, it is a continual process. Oh, definitely. I remember being so nervous and just genuinely worried and anxious about, you know, would people want to be interested in what I've got to say or what are people thinking now? What are people, are people understanding this? Do I have to ask this in a different way to get that learning across? I used to overthink so much of it. But in terms of the words of wisdom comment that you mentioned just then, I think it's always worth somebody spending a little bit of time thinking about why they enjoy doing what they do or why they're doing what they're doing. And if you can find something that you enjoy, it becomes a lot more a lot more seamless, a lot more easier because the process is a lot more natural, I guess. 
Absolutely. And I think that's so important because one of the things that we talk about so much is that as a facilitator, it's a privilege to be standing in front of people for six, seven hours or sitting at home in front of the screen and people for six or seven hours and having their time there. It's an absolute privilege to do that. But equally, as a facilitator, you have the right and should absolutely love what you're doing as well and have that enjoyment factor in it. And part of that is about facilitating exceptional training. You know, at the end of the day, just like you, when I facilitated a training course, you want to know that you've met the needs of your delegates. And actually by using, I would argue by using training for influence methodology, but speaking to this step in particular, by considering how you've brought that expertise in the room, whether it's your years of experience or learning that you've done or co-facilitation or, or however you've ensured you've brought that expert in the room, the chances are, without a doubt, that at the end of that session, people will have taken away more than they would have done if you hadn't have put that time and that effort in. And we all want that, don't we? We all want, mm. at the end of our training sessions, we want people to say, that was brilliant. I learned so much. And this is how I'm going to change the way or adapt the way or amend the way that I'm currently delivering services or working with people or, or whatever it might be. Yeah, absolutely. I've been training for years now. I did a two-day cast probably about six to eight weeks ago. There was a couple of things and I made notes of it thinking, I'm going to do that differently because I really like that. And that worked for me as a person. And I think it'll work for me as a facilitator as well. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for your time again, James. Thank you. We started at half eight and then just chatted and now we're on um, half past ten. So (laughs) just about bedtime, ready for the day tomorrow. But I really appreciate it and I think you brought loads of value to the podcast for our listeners and hopefully reassured some of them that they absolutely are experts or they can go and seek some expertise to bring into their training sessions. And also it's just been a joy to chat. Uh, you know me, I could chat all day long. But no, thank, thank you, I've enjoyed it. And hopefully, uh, hopefully it'll be useful. Brilliant, take care, James. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you found this podcast both useful and enjoyable. If you'd like to access any of the free resources mentioned, assess your training against the methodology, or find out more about the Train the Trainer programme, please head to our website, trainingforinfluence.co.uk. And to finish, I'd just like to say, I truly believe that facilitating training is both an opportunity and a privilege. So thank you for recognising that effective values-led training can make a real difference to delegates, to organisations, and ultimately to people accessing frontline services.